welcome back to a very special episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, the only podcast which is proven to stimulate an immune response in just 41 doses. <laughs> I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. That's right, oh. Stephanie. You just recently got a promotion at the Kansas City Symphony. I did. Congratulations. So exciting. Woo-hoo. Thank you. It's is very fancy, and uh, uh, I'm very excited to be taking on some um, extra responsibilities, especially in the area of our mobile music box and other community partnerships. So, uh, you know, be looking for that this spring all over Kansas City. Awesome. Stephanie literally keeps the wheels on that bus, uh, <laughs> so I am really excited to uh, get back to doing some of those concerts. <laughs> That's my theme song now is the wheels on the bus. <laughs> That's awesome. I can't think of anyone better to be a great liaison for the community than you, Stephanie. Thanks, guys. Uh, you are awesome, and, and that is just great. We're all so excited for you. Congratulations. Thank you. So it has been... Almost exactly one year since the three of us were locked in a room with our producer, Tim, and told to make a podcast. (laughs) Sadly, that was the first of only two episodes we've ever recorded together in person. But I'm so confident the way things are going now that we are going to be back together and be able to do more in person. And I can't wait for that to happen. I can't wait either. It's always fun when we get to hang out together in person, of course, whether we're doing a podcast episode or just hanging out and having fun. As a matter of fact, we still need to go get our barbecue lunch. If you remember when Dave Tebow was on. Oh, I remember. Uh, the winner of, of Bar Talk that day got to choose where we go for um, barbecue. Now, we did think that Mike won that day, but we did find out later we did a recount of, of the points. And uh, it turns out that Dave Tebow actually won. So Dave's going to be picking the barbecue spot and we will go get barbecue as soon as the weather's nicer and we can sit outside and, and distance from each other. It's going to be a lot of fun. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but you know, guys, when I think about how hard it was really to do that very first episode, I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing at all. We just kind of jumped into it. Um, it's hard to imagine that we would be sitting here a year later recording our 41st episode. This is so exciting. And we kind of covered our origin story, so to say, back in our 2020 year in review episode. So today, rather than looking backwards, we want to look forward. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've spent a lot of this year kind of lamenting what we were supposed to be doing this year and didn't get to do or how things were in the past. And, uh, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm done. (laughs) It's time. It's time to look ahead. Uh, things are, things are better today than they were a few months ago, certainly. And I think they're going to keep on getting better and we're moving forward. And, you know, when we started this podcast, just as we were going into quarantine, it was never actually meant to be just something we did during the pandemic. And of course, at that time, we didn't even understand how long uh, this quarantine period might go on for. But it was something that that I think we wanted to do that we thought was important uh, and hopefully enjoyable for those of you who listen to us. And our goal was and always is to be able to give our listeners a seat at the bar with musicians mm-hmm. and a chance to join in on a friendly chat about the music uh, and musicians we love. And since it's now finally spring again, we thought it would make sense today to share some of our favorite music for springtime. Oh, <laughs> isn't that nice? 
Guys, spring is my favorite season of the year. I don't know about you guys, but I just love when the weather starts getting nicer again. And especially now after a long winter, being able to go out and sit outside and enjoy the, the, the company of other people on your back porch, spread apart, of course. Um, but I, I love the season. I love the rebirth. I love all the green that you get to see again and the, and the flowers blooming, etc. And But there really is a lot of music that's been inspired by this season as well. We're going to talk about some of that today. At the Kansas City Symphony, we just recently recorded last week Copeland's Appalachian Spring, which is perhaps the mo- one of the most famous pieces that deal with this time of year. Uh, it's a wonderful piece. Of course, it exists in two versions. There's the chamber version for 13 players. That was the original version that Copeland wrote. And that's the version we recorded last week at the symphony for mysymphonyseat.org. But then there's also the full orchestra version, which we actually recently did at the KC Symphony. I think it was two years ago, maybe three years ago. Both are great versions. I, I don't know about you guys. I personally prefer the original chamber version, 100%. which was written for Martha. You guys too? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, it was written for Martha Graham's ballet, which was premiered in the 1940s at the Library of Congress. And this was like an amazing event. People were really looking forward to this. You had probably America's most well-known composer of the time working with America's most well-known person in the ballet world, mm-hmm. uh, choreography, choreographer Martha Graham. So it was a, a huge success, and it is probably one of the most often performed chamber works still today. It's just an amazing piece. It's uh, of course, uses the sh- famous Shaker hymn, uh, Simple Gifts, and actually coming up, uh, I'm doing a week with the symphony in April, a pop sh- a performance and a classical performance. And we're going to be doing John Williams' Air and Simple Gifts using that same melody. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote that for Barack Obama's first inauguration back in 2008. It's Ock Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma and Anthony McGill and Gabriela Moreno played that, and it was awesome. And then he wrote a string orchestra version. So, of course, it's a very popular tune, Simple Gifts. It's perfect for springtime. It really sets the mood for this time of year. You know, I think one of the reasons that I, I lean a little bit more toward the chamber version than the than the full orchestra version is it has a very special place in my heart because Mike and I actually got to play it together when we were at Rice. No kidding. We played, cool. uh, yeah, the original instrumentation, um, and it was Mike on flute and me on clarinet and Karen Miller, who now plays in Oregon, I think, uh, playing bassoon. I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, and a whole bunch of amazing string players, and uh, that's still to me that not just the the performance experience of it, but the the preparation and the rehearsing is one of the most I think meaningful musical experiences I've had in my life. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, and you know, the thing I love about the thirteen player version. Um, you know, often a large orchestra adds so much color, right? And so so many composers have taken pieces that were originally written maybe for piano or for a small ensemble uh, and made them bigger. And they've become these iconic works because the color of the orchestra really added so much to it. And in in this piece, I mean, it would be really interesting if somebody other than Copeland reorchestrated the 13-player version into some mm. other imagination of the big version to see if he could bring something else out of the piece. But I think the small version is actually more colorful and certainly more um, intimate and more true to what I think the piece means than the big version. And, and I will also say, since we had the great uh, Larry Ratcliffe join us a little while ago, and 
I have to tell a story uh, about this performance that Stephanie and I did because the first time I I played this piece uh, was this performance that Stephanie mm-hmm. is talking about at Rice, um, and I got to rehearsal and and as was sometimes the case, and maybe this has become a bit of a theme through the course of our forty episodes that in my youth I was sometimes only in my youth, not still sometimes unprepared for rehearsal. (laughs) And I distinctly remember coming to the first rehearsal uh, for this piece, which uh, the, the small version, the flute part is very similar to the big version, but there's just more stuff in it. Well, and it's just you. And it's just me, right? There's nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) and so I got in there and I played and I, I kind of well, I won't. I won't use the word that I might use. Uh, it did not go well. It did not go well. <laughs> and Larry uh, stepped. I, I vividly remember this. He stepped off the podium and came up in front of my stand, and he grabbed my stand and, without saying anything, he just turned it around to face himself, and he started look looking at my part, and he's looking at it. <laughs> And he's looking at it and flipping some pages and kind of pretending to look through it. And then he turns it back around very quickly in very Larry-like fashion. He just says, aha, ah, aha, yes. <laughs> and then he gets back up on the podium. And the facial expression is really an important part of the story as well that I can't recreate on a podcast. But just, just the quiet, you know, he didn't yell at me. He just came to my stand, flipped through the pages of my part. As if to say, aha, nothing you just did looks like what I see on this page. <laughs> and then he handed it back to me. I was <laughs> he just wanted there. to make sure. I remember that. You I probably was, remember. I was quite <laughs> scared too. Yeah. Yeah. He just wanted to make sure that you actually had the same flute notes in your part that he had in his score that he wasn't hearing probably. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he knew that something was missing that needed to have been there. So, yes. Anyway. As you hopefully gathered, if you listen to our interview, I do not uh, hold grudge for that uh, event, but it was pretty funny in retrospect. You know, that was not the first time I'd played that piece. I'd actually played it um, a summer or two before that um, at a music festival at uh, the Brevard Music Festival in North Carolina. And I fell in love with the piece then. I mean, and and so at Rice, you know, you get, you, you're assigned pieces by, you know, I, I, obviously Larry makes a lot of those decisions with, you know, in consultation and uh, obviously working with your private instructors, you know, dividing up those parts and everything. And in my two years at Rice, I never asked for anything. I, you know, specific parts. I, you know, you take what you're given and, you know, but I fought for that one really hard. Like I wanted to play Appalachian Spring and fortunately I, I got to do that. So awesome experience. Now you guys said that you did this with Larry, and I've conducted the 13-chamber version many times, but you can do it without a conductor. Have mm-hmm. either of you done it without a conductor, and do you prefer it that way, or do you prefer it with a conductor? I always prefer stuff without a conductor, Jason. They just get in the way. Wow. 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 <laughs> we, uh, okay. we did this without conductor on a happy hour, actually. That's right. I remember that. A yeah. few years ago. I can't remember quite yep. how far back it was, but uh, yeah, we did it we did it here in Hellsburg Hall, and oh, that was a blast. I mean, we had a really uh, full house that night, and again, one of my favorite pieces. And actually, I think that might have been the only other time that I played the 13-player version. So I've done it, you know, once with Larry and once with that conductor. And, and the thing that's really interesting, I think, about 
Copeland, you know, he went literally out of his way to write music that was simple in a way and approachable and understandable because he started out writing, you know, really esoteric music in a lot of his pieces. And he did, he did a little bit more of that later too. But in this period, you know, he really felt like he wanted to connect with real people, not necessarily music nerds. Mm -hmm. And so I think what happens oftentimes is musicians try to make the music more complicated in a way than it really is, or that it was meant to be. And, you know, a conductor is a person who sort of, you know, brings everybody onto the same page, not just in terms of the beat, but in terms of the interpretation, in terms of how you how you um, understand a piece of music. And and this music actually is, it sounds stupid to say, it's complex in its simplicity, you know? And if you don't mm-hmm. really create the architecture of the whole, you know, 20, 25-minute piece from start to finish, it doesn't quite make sense in the right way. And mm-hmm. for all 13 people to have a coordinated sense of what that is without a single person there on the podium is really, really difficult and time consuming and requires a lot of conversation and a lot of musical dialogue as we're playing. So it was cool, but it was really, really hard. Hmm. It's interesting you say that that there is a great simplicity to the to the music because I have a great CD of Copeland rehearsing the piece, conducting and rehearsing with uh, 13 chamber players from Columbia University. And he many times brings that exact point up, Mike, that they're overplaying it, that they're overly sentimental, that they're, he uses the word noncommittal. I want a more noncommittal sound here to not, it's, it's not Brahms, it's not Scriabin, it's meant to be American and simple and not, and not so, you know, make it more introverted, which is, uh, it's, so it's kind of cool that you say that. Well, I mean, of course, Appalachian Spring is just one of many pieces that are, are great this time of year. I know each of us um, thought about this and thought about some other pieces that we love that kind of represent springtime and, and, and the season and growth and rebirth and everything else. Stephanie, what, what are some of your favorite pieces for springtime? So it was funny when, when, you know, we, we talked about what we were going to do in this episode and the idea of springtime came up it, immediately. The first piece that came to my head, which I don't believe was actually written for spring. It was written during the springtime and also the wintertime and probably other times. Uh, but it's <laughs> it's um, Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony has always really um, felt like springtime to me. Um, it's a piece that I fell in love with from Fantasia. Um, the original Fantasia, <laughs> way back when. Which, just to interrupt real quick, yes. was created way before any of us were born. But let's, we have all seen it, of course. Yes, let's be clear. We just were wanted just to talking, clarify that. Before we got on, we were talking about gray hairs. So yes, even before that, <laughs> yes. Um, Beethoven's depiction of not not necessarily what these... Um, like the setting of springtime, but more about the feeling that you get in the country during, you know, a certain time of year, you know, you, you, the feeling that kind of overcomes you when you're outdoors in nature next to the, the babbling brook and, you know, amidst a, a gathering of people, you know, with a, with a little country band, you know, dancing, you know, that feeling that mm-hmm. you get those, the, those sensations that you get when the thunderstorm passes through um, and then the sun comes out at the end. And I think, um, to me, the entire piece, which, you know, is also unique because it's a five movement work um, instead of a traditional four movement symphony. And 
all of those all of those things um, to me really encapsulate what springtime sounds like, especially um, you know the the bird the bird calls, which um, you know. And as a clarinetist, you know, like it, it, Beethoven six is um, in a lot of the excerpts and on auditions, and something that you know you get you get to spend a lot of time with in training as well. A lot of clarinet auditions. Yep. I've listened to a lot of clarinet auditions, a lot of Beethoven six. You should sing it at, at, the, at your next clarinet audition, Stephanie. If you ever take a clarinet audition, now that you have this promotion, that might be the end of your clarinet career. Possibly. I think the fact that my clarinet has been in its case for 10 plus years has probably ended my clarinet career. That could also be a sign. That is, that is true. Well, you know, guys, Vivaldi's Spring from the Four Seasons is an obvious choice. Yep. But And I, of course, love all, all of the four of the Four Seasons that Vivaldi wrote. But what some people might not know is that Vivaldi's not the only composer to write a Four Seasons piece. Uh, the great Astor Piazzolla from Argentina also wrote uh, his version of the Four Seasons. And the first movement of spring in particular, it's the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires, is really amazing. I highly suggest you, love you listen piece. to it if you've never heard it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I love when orchestras actually, I've seen orchestras play the Vivaldi Four yep. Seasons and the Piazzolla Four Seasons on the same program. And it's cool to see two different composers' takes on each of the yep. seasons and, and the characteristics of them back to back. I love the Piazzolla Spring because it really captures the energy and the vitality of, of the season. And it's just a nice, you know, alternative version of, of the season from the Vivaldi version. Max Richter, who is a German-born uh, British composer, actually wrote a piece called Recomposed. He wrote it uh, in 2012. And he is sort of a neoclassical minimalist composer. So he takes Vivaldi's actual writing and just transforms it with different harmonies underneath it. He puts mesmerizing ostinatos underneath it. And I think it's brilliant. So definitely check out his version of Spring in a piece called Recomposed. As a matter of fact, if you are a foodie like me, uh, you have heard the winter, the first movement of winter from Max Richter's Recomposed on Netflix's show Chef's Table. Uh, it's the version that's in 7-8, basically, instead of 4-4, four, four, cut time. And I always thought it was brilliant when I heard that opening introduction. And I just thought that, you know, someone writing for the show had created this different ver version of Vivaldi. I didn't realize it was an actual piece by Max Richter. My mind is blown right now because until you, you just, just said that this whole time, because it's not in the same meter. And so, and I, right. it would, it, like, and I thought it was genius, but also like, yeah. like, you know, a little bit like, wait, what are they doing? Because it's not, yeah, the meters are different. My mind is blown. I had no idea that was Max Richter. I'm <laughs> glad I could blow your mind today, I learned Stephanie. something just now. <laughs> That's awesome. That's what Beethoven Walks Into a Bar is all about. We all, highly, we're all learning something. Highly, highly recommend um, Chef's Table on Netflix as well. Excellent. Yes. Not just for the music, but also for the food and the stories. I gotta Absolutely. go watch this. I love food. Oh, it's so good. You've yeah, not seen you Chef's Table? Where have I been? There's not like on Netflix. four or five seasons of it now. Oh, it's, it's a so brilliant good. show. Man. But you know what's so great good. about using that, that, that recomposed version of Winter with the different meter, the reason why I love it and why I think it fits that show so perfectly is that show is all about not only genius chefs around the world, but what they have done to recreate yep. 
or completely go in a different direction with food in their native countries than what had existed traditionally before. Yep. And that's exactly what Max Richter does with Vivaldi's music. He takes it in a completely different direction. So it's the perfect choice uh, for that show as well. That's so smart. I want to go back and rewatch it now just to listen to that. It's, you should. Maybe you should. I should I just listen it. to Max Richter's piece instead of going back to just watch the intro of Chef's Table. You should listen to all four seasons the way he recomposed <laughs> okay. them. Yeah, and and Mike, you better watch the show because it's really I, good. I need to watch the show. I have a special connection with the four seasons, actually. Oh, and the and, hotel or the landscaping company? Uh, oh dear. Well, actually, I do have one with the hotel, but I won't tell that now. <laughs> I was I was talking about uh, about the music and true Hollywood fact right here. My mother planned for me to be born. To the Four Seasons. What? Oh, oh. And she had a little portable uh, eight-track player. For those of you out there under the age of, I don't know what age you have to be under, but if you don't know what an eight-track is, go 40, Google it. Probably. You'll probably find a picture of it. But they had this, the 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 best feature of an eight-track is they will just loop. It's not like a regular cassette uh, where you have to rewind it to play it again. They would just loop. And so, uh, without getting into too many gory details, my mother's labor went on for a lot longer than planned, and that lo- that four seasons went around a whole lot of times. So, uh, yeah, that is my special connection with the four <laughs> <Aww>. seasons. <laughs> you know, you know what's really interesting is. Jason earlier when we were talking earlier mentioned that he had a CD that he really liked and I yes. knew I held myself back from making a joke. I saw what, your face. What, I knew you know, what I the heck you is a res- CD yeah. but then Mike took us even back to the 8-track oh, and the cassette. Back. Way back. <laughs> we, we might have to do a like a, a, a in the show notes we might have to do a little tutorial about I, what all of these music mediums the are. <laughs> it looks like a it looked like a lunchbox and you <laughs> Stick the cartridge in the side of it. I mean, the thing is ancient, but they still have it, I'm sure. Wow. We went from, somehow we went from chef's table to Mike's difficult childbirth. I'm not sure what happened there, but... uh, This is why we have guests most of the time, because when we don't, it really goes off the rails. All right. Well, I'm going to get us back on track. I have one more piece for spring, and it is, of course, La Sac du Printemps, the the rite of spring. By Igor Stravinsky, great Russian composer, who, of course, wrote three amazing ballets in the 1910s. Uh, In addition to The Rite of Spring, he also wrote Firebird in that decade and Petrushka. Um, But what's really cool is that this is kind of like captures the earthy or primal part of spring with all the, the new life that comes in spring. Um, But what I also like is that after this, you know, we've recorded two Stravinsky pieces for mysymphonyseat.org in the past couple months. I conducted the Stravinsky Octet, and then Michael Stern conducted uh, Dumbarton Oaks. And those are both pieces by Stravinsky that were written after that, that decade of great ballets in his neoclassical style. Mm-hmm. And just as people were getting used to the avant-garde sounds they were hearing in ballets, like the Rite of Spring... All of a sudden, Stravinsky had a rebirth himself and started to write in a completely different style and kind of shocked the world with that. So uh, kind of a, a great piece for spring, but also it's it's kind of cool how composers kind of go through may, possibly four seasons or a few seasons of their career and the way they write. I always think that's kind of cool, too. You know, um, I don't have a direct story that about Rite of Spring, but I do um, know 
two people who were in an orchestra that I will not name where they were rehearsing Rite of Spring. And it was, I'll say that it was not in an orchestra where many union rules apply. Maybe any union <laughs> rules apply. So, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> um, the first day of rehearsal, the first they sat down and they immediately turned to the infernal dance. That's where they started. So that's sacrificial like, dance. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sacrificial yep. dance. And they, what is the infernal dance from Firebird? Firebird. That's Firebird. Yeah. Sacrificial dance. Um, and so, I mean, that's, you know, mixed meter, you know, Monday morning, you're walking into rehearsal and those are the first notes that you're going to play. And the conductor raises hands and then gives a downbeat and they play maybe and then cuts off and then no, 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 no. And proceeds to rant for about 10 minutes about how how that it wasn't right and it wasn't together. And let's start again. And that was this person's first day of work in an orchestra. No, this it's pretty fun. This piece is it's amazing. I mean, there's so many pieces like that where you know many many musicians will have a, a very personal story uh, with it. But I, for some reason, Rite of Spring more than any other that I can think of, and I have my own Rite of Spring stories. But also for conductors, mm-hmm. Jason, this yes. this piece is is um i think so monumental conductors do it for auditions all the time i'm pretty sure you did part of right of spring i for had your to audition conduct here. the sacrificial dance for my audition here and i've had to do various other parts for various and various auditions as well yeah it is it is a real opportunity for a conductor to show off and <laughs> and one of my um most vivid experiences with this piece. I did it once with uh, a conductor who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, a guy by the name of Rafael Frubeck de Burgos, uh, who's legendary Spanish conductor. He did this piece uh, at Tanglewood when I was, uh, I got to play in the orchestra and he could solfege, like say the notes of every single part in the orchestra from memory. He conducted rehearsals from memory. He knew the bar numbers from memory, but but he had this really funny way of of telling people how to do things differently, and he had this really distinctive voice that I can't exactly uh, imitate. But he'd be like, "No, no, no, You know, he'd just do that like all day long. He wouldn't even use words half the time. He would just do that at everybody in the orchestra, and the guy was absolutely amazing. Uh, anyway, so yes, next time you get to see that piece, just think you were watching the conductor do one of the most virtuosic things that conductors do. Absolutely. And we do a lot of virtuosic things, so that's saying something. A lot. Jason, is that on your list of, um, I mean, is that something like if, if you saw it on, a, on an audition, is that something you would be excited about or something that would make you terrified? The f- first time it was on a conducting audition for me, I was terrified, mm. especially the sacrificial dance. There's three parts really that tend to show up on conducting auditions. The sacrificial dance is definitely one of them. But now that I've done it a few times, because it's one of those things, you know, all conducting, until you stand in front of an orchestra and physically do it, you mm-hmm. can practice all you want in the comfort of your own home. But to see how an orchestra reacts to something that's that rhythmically complex, it is really scary the first time. Um, but the, I, you know, the second and third time I did it, I had a lot more confidence doing it. It's still nerve wracking. I remember Pierre Boulez, the great, great conductor and composer spoke at our graduation at CIM, our commencement. And he brought up the Rite of Spring and said he's done the piece 20 some times. 
And still, every time he does it, he's scared to death. Because all it takes is one moment of one thing to go wrong, and the whole thing can fall apart, especially in the sacrificial dance. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a little nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've seen that happen. I can I can remember a performance, uh, again, I will not name the orchestra, or the <laughs> place, or the conductor, uh, and I couldn't tell by watching that the conductor had made a mistake, but of course I heard about it from everybody afterward. You know, ah, he scared up, he left out a 5-8 measure. <laughs> but all I heard out in the audience was, you know, suddenly fewer and fewer people were playing and it was sounding less and less and less like, <laughs> like the right of spring. And then the players the were wrong the ones of spring. being sacrificed. And then as if, as if, the wrong of spring, it was like, as if some hero, you know, jumping out of the trenches to charge across no man's land, a trumpet by himself went, yeah, da, 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 what, da, 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 and suddenly the whole orchestra just kind of glummed on to that and it came back together. <laughs> Leave it to the trumpet player just to be like, hold on. Yeah. I'm just plowing like, through. Hold my beer. This is where we are. <laughs> Entering full derailment. Oh, oh man. Mike, what do you what what do you like uh this oh. time of year? What are some of your favorite musical pieces? Oh man, you know, I I have so many, but I kind of wanted to go off the beaten path a little bit. And just by happenstance, so uh, you may have heard, for those of you who listen, that I, as well as our great Stephanie Brimhall, are graduates of uh, Rice University. We mentioned that probably in some context, at least. Have we mentioned that before? I don't think so. Are you sure? Maybe every other episode or so. Um, So I received a wonderful email uh, from a a colleague of mine in Houston, actually, who is working to put together a commission uh, for uh, this wonderful composer uh, who was also a teacher of mine at Rice. His name is Kareem Alzand. And uh, the, the commission is, you know, of course, still in progress. But it made me think of him for the first time in a long time. And he and I um, have, you know, sort of a connection in that I was a student of his, a bad student. And <laughs> he, he taught a, a class uh, that musicians call oral skills, A-U-R-A-L, as in uh, listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and... First of all, it was at like nine o'clock in the morning, so I slept through half of them. And Why are all oral skills classes at I don't nine in the morning? Oh man, I, mine was at eight, even worse. Right? I can't hear anything that early in and the morning. And who can sing that early in the morning? No one. So Kareem yeah. was my oral skills teacher, and at that time uh, when I started at Rice, it was also his first year at Rice. So uh, I was part of his first class of people that that he taught. Um, and I remember he kind of marked it in a very sweet way uh, four years later when a bunch of us graduated. He's incredibly kind, uh, incredibly thoughtful, and incredibly patient person <laughs> and teacher. Uh, so I was really excited to participate in the commission. But anyway, it made me want to go uh, look up you know, some of his music that he's written over the last 20 years, because I played a few things of his when I was a student. He was a really phenomenal composer. And it turned out uh, he had this album from 2018 called Studies in Nature. And it's just beautiful music, all of it. And it's it's perfect for spring. There are, uh, what, three or four different pieces on here. And I they're like 21 different tracks. But I just want to read you the names of some of these tracks, because they just scream spring, I think. <laughs> so the, the movements of, of the studies in nature, sea lilies, radiolaria, or air, 
jellyfish, adder of rose, lavender, jasmine. Oh, this is on to the next piece. But jasmine, orange blossom, against the rain, a prayer for a profusion of sunflowers. So these pieces, uh, the the first one, um, studies in nature, uh, is uh, inspired by a biologist and naturalist uh, who made these wonderful illustrations. His name was Aaron's Heckel. Um, and then uh, there's another piece called uh, Quelque Fleur, uh, which is all about the connection of sound with the sense of different flowers. And all these are different instrumentations too, by the way. So really, really colorful. The Quelque Fleur is clarinet, uh, cello, piano. The first piece is flute, viola, harp. Uh, there's a song cycle uh, called Orange Torches Against the Rain. Really incredible music. And Kareem has such a such varied um uh, just personal and cultural influences as well. He was born in Tunisia and uh, grew up uh, for, I think, most of his young life in Canada and uh, went to McGill, went to Harvard. And then, of course, now he's been in Houston uh, for 20-some years. Anyway, just a phenomenal guy. And I was so excited uh, to reconnect with him and with his music. I think everyone should go out and have a listen. He has plenty of other stuff too, but this particular disc is... Uh, really, really terrific and very springy. Well, and that's an excellent way to remind everyone that we uh, that we will have we have links to all of these pieces in the show notes for every episode. So if you you know if you hear us talking about a piece of music, you're almost certain to find it um, in a, a YouTube or Spotify or other playlist link in our show notes as well. So we'll make sure and include all of these tunes so you can get your springtime music on. Calca fleur. Your French is definitely better than mine, Mike. That was really good. Oh, I thank you. I don't know Kareem's music at all, so I'm looking forward to checking out those links as well, Stephanie. Um, We're going to conclude today. We we gave you some of our favorite music for springtime, but it also we want to uh, give you some of our favorite beverages for springtime. As you guys know, I love bourbon, and I like all things bourbon, Manhattans, Old Fashions, Whiskey Sours. But this time of year, I also like to add another cocktail, and that is the Aviation, which is a delicious, perfect springy cocktail. Um, I make mine, the, I've, I've experimented with different recipes, but the recipe I found that works the best, and we'll put this in the show notes if you're interested, is two ounces gin, three-fourths of an ounce of freshly squeezed lemon juice, half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, preferably Luxardo, who also makes the best cherries, and a quarter ounce of creme de violette, which is perfect because the violet is a spring flower, and it gives the drink not only a floral taste, but also a beautiful purple color. Now, those are kind of hard measurements, like a fourth of an ounce. So what I do is I just double it or quadruple it. It makes the measurements a lot easier, (laughs) and it makes you a lot happier drinking (laughs) multiple aviations. So we'll put the recipe for a single aviation in the show notes, but I highly recommend you double it or quadruple it, (laughs) if you will. Eight times, whatever you want to do. Makes the math a lot easier. I have had one of your aviations, actually, and uh, I will second that they are extremely delicious. And um, you could also just get a really big cocktail glass. That's true. You could do that. That works as well. I'm looking forward to trying that. Well, next time we're together, at Jason's I'll make house. You all there you go. Yes, there you go. There we go. We should have done it last summer when we got together. <laughs> we should have. Well, I am going to go. Uh, I'm going to go a little lowbrow 
for my recommendation. Little, <laughs> little simple, little, eh, little unsophisticated. I would go so far as to say. Um, so, for whatever reason, for many, many years, you know, that first day of spring when it's actually warm feels so good, right? And you know, one of my favorite places to be uh, in my home is out on my deck, and. And for some reason, when it first warms up, I really want to go to the store and buy a six pack of some kind of like chili pepper infused beer. And I can't name any specific one. I mean, there are many. It's kind of a fad, you know, and some of them are honestly not that good. And some of them are okay. You know, if you really like beer, it covers the things you like about beer. But if you just want that little kick for whatever reason it's i think it's delicious and refreshing so i i will get that literally once a year and then (laughs) what i think also pairs really really well with that is a little mezcal Mm. and in the winter time i tend not to drink too many like tequila or mezcal kind of things but for some reason when it warms up i want that more so like a little bit of little boiler maker you know a little mezcal which of course if it's good you know you don't want to shoot it just sip it responsibly but that paired really nicely with a spicy peppery beer i think it's just Mm. a lovely way to enjoy a spring day if you happen to make some you know smoked meats in the process it's not a bad thing (laughs) well so so basically what we're saying is we're going to jason's for a violet infused cocktail and then we're going to mike's for some smoked meats and some uh, boiler makers yeah i like it and then we're coming to your house for what? What are we coming to your house for? Oh, well, let's see. The, the progression would be for some kind of dessert, but you guys are way out of luck because I'm not a baker. I'm an excellent uh. cook, but no, I'm not a baker. So um, I'm kind of going same route as Mike. So I don't know if, if all of you know this, but I'm a wine drinker. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that. You have. On this podcast, yes. Um, of course I have. Um, <laughs> and I am typically a red wine drinker, but f- just like Mike, for like maybe two weeks out in the spring, I like to to grab me a, a rosé from Costco. Nothing fancy, mm. just a, a good like, and you get like the big bottle, like not, not, you know, just the regular, the regular size bottle. You got to give like, you have to get the big Costco size bottle of rosé and enjoy that out on the patio. I'm a, I almost said, the Texas almost came out of me. I almost said, I'm fixing to go outside and do that with my kids. You should have did. <laughs> Actually, because my children, my children just got, we just got a trampoline. My children bought themselves a trampoline oh. with their Christmas money. Oh, nice. And so now we're spending, um, we're spending a lot of time out on the deck and it is warming up certainly enough for children to be on a trampoline, but I am looking forward to taking my glass of rosé out on the deck and watching my children not break their legs on their newly purchased trampoline. I'm fixing to do that. I thought you were fixing to take your glass of rosé out onto the trampoline and after the third (laughs) or fourth glass, try some flips, perhaps. I don't know. (laughs) Full disclosure, when my husband and I were putting it together recently, I fell down a number of times on the trampoline trying to (laughs) install the net around it. So it was, and that was with no rosé. So yeah, so just leave the rosé on the trampoline is not a good idea. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun today. Uh, some good recommendations, I think, for springtime music and springtime drinks to enjoy while you're listening to that music. And we got a lot of great stuff coming up at the Symphony, of course, with mysymphonyseat.org. Also, Stephanie, where can people find out information about 
all the places the mobile music box is going to be starting in April. Absolutely. We are really ramping up our appearances in the community um, starting at the very beginning of April. Um, April 1st is kind of when we're aiming to get started. And all throughout April, May and June, um, you can find the mobile music box um, at a variety of locations around the city. If you uh, want to look for specific locations, you can do that at kcsymphony.org. Have you ever wondered why the Kansas City Symphony is one of the very best in the world? What makes us tick? Well, in addition to world-class musicians and incredible staff and an extremely supportive community, we are blessed to have a dynamic board of directors. We have the honor of sitting down next week with one of our favorite board members, Gina Williams. We're going to have the chance to learn all about Gina, how she fell in love with music, and what she and her colleagues on the board are doing behind the scenes all the time to keep the Kansas City Symphony at the top of their game. Next week on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 